This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I bring you a taste of what's new in my world and then interview inspiring people in the food industry who work behind the scenes. We find out what they do, their road to success, and you'll learn about some jobs you probably have never heard of. Today, my guests include a talented chef who's closing her restaurant after 17 years, the woman responsible for some of the most incredible experiences at the number one restaurant in the world, as well as a scene maker and a scene stealer who created an incredible restaurant group in Hong Kong. So on Monday night, I was invited to a celebration of Anissa. Anissa is a beautiful, small restaurant on Barrow Street that Chef Anita Lowe created 17 years ago. The event that I was invited to was a selection of Anita's greatest hits cooked by five of her legendary sous chefs. Why is that? Why that meal? Because Anissa is closing. And I wanted to take this moment to talk to Anita about the incredible restaurant that she created and some of the lasting lessons from her time there. So, Anita, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on Speaking Broadly. Thanks, Dana. Thanks for having me. I remember when um, Anissa first opened and you had an incredible female power team. It was you and Jennifer Schism, is that how you pronounce her name? And Schism. And, um, and an all-female producer wine list. Yeah. That was, like, that. That, was, that was more than a decade before the gods of food, peace, and Time magazine that really blew the lid off the whole gender conversation. And I, just, I wanted to talk about gender and restaurants back then. Like, what were you thinking when you put together that list? What was on your mind? Um, you know, I, I think I grew up in a feminist household. My mother was a doctor before, you know, uh, I mean, she was one of the very few female doctors in the country at the time. Um, but she was certainly the only female doctor. And actually, yeah, she, she was actually the only female um, doctor in her hospital and also the only person of color on the, um, uh, on the doctor's team. You know, I've always been hyper aware of issues, um, revolving around women and so when we started our restaurant we were actually just doing that list off of um the name because anisa means women in arabic so we thought it would be cool to celebrate women in wine so are there some female producers who you've had on your list since the beginning who you want to give a shout out to who you just love so much 
Oh gosh, there've been so many. Uh, Sue Juan Newton, uh, Janet Trefethen, Ariana Okipinti. Gosh, I mean, yeah. You could keep on going. I think what's Um, what's great about the list is when you started, you did indeed call attention to the fact that they were all women. It it is now and was then always an incredibly strong list. Like it was, the wines were fantastic, and it was almost a shame to you know even have to point out that they were all women. But I think that you you were also sort of doing a bit of um, a bit of service in in doing so and in bringing to light these women who. Um, you know, we're just making great wine and needed to be recognized. Uh, I feel like you've been an incredible mentor. You've been great at recognizing talent in, in others. And one of the things about the dinner on Monday night was the team of cooks who prepared that meal. And they had all worked for you, and they clearly love you so much. And and you had said how, you know, you didn't have kids, and so this would really, these cooks were your family. Um, one of the chefs said that, you know, you allowed her or taught her how to be tough in the, in the kitchen. What did she mean by that? <laughs> I'm not quite sure, but you know, I think, um, your stereotypical gender roles don't necessarily allow you, allow you to be tough as a, as a woman. So, so mean, how tough you know, were you, I'm, Anita? <laughs> I, I think I've been, yeah, I, I think I've always been, you know, exacting. I don't, you know, I try to be I, I always try to be reasonable, and um, I always try to um, be kind. But at the same time, I, th- I, I think you know we're, we're trying to run a business, and we're trying to do things in a certain way, and make things as perfect as possible. And you have to maintain standards. So, I mean, hopefully that's what she meant. <laughs> maybe, maybe I was a jerk. I don't remember. <laughs> sure, you're giving license to an entire group of people to just be jerks. I think that wasn't what she meant. Um, and the and the, the other thing that to a last person they, they said was you had taught them every foundational thing they know about cooking in the kitchen. You were their first chef, which I just found so moving to be called. You, know, you are my first chef. What is it that you think that you taught them that was foundational that they you know, bring on for the rest of their careers? I don't know. I think it's something that's being handed down from generation to generation. I mean, I really, David Boulay was my first chef. And I just remember, you know, and we didn't have any, my father died when I was really young. And I, I grew up with my stepfather, but he wasn't a very good father figure. You know, so I, I just remember it being like 21 years old and working in the kitchen and feeling like that was such a strong role model for me, like having like, a chef, you know, that my chef. And I'm sure that's, that, you know, I guess that's probably how he felt. I don't know. I mean, I think he, yeah, I, I can't speak for him. But um, the thing is about kitchens is that it, they're, they're all encompassing. You really spend a lot of time there. And it, it does become its own little microcosm of a family. Right. Well, I I love the, what came out of your kitchen, of course. You know, there's the, the talent at the stove, and then there's the food that you created. Uh, I love the way your food crosses boundaries, you know, borrowing from Lebanon or Japan or Spain. And you did that long before and more elegantly than um, other people. I'm wondering, as that idea of, you know, borrowing from other cultures has landed so squarely on the plate today, whether there are other trends that you see going forward that interests you or um, what you think is ahead? Hmm. New trends. I mean, there's always... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by, I mean, this is not a new trend by any means, but, um, and clearly, yeah, this is 
very, very old on some level. The, um, but, you know, Israeli cuisine is, is hot right now. Um, I went to Israel uh, with Adina Sussman um, and uh, Jen Lewis and Mar- Marco Knorr a couple of years ago. And that was that was amazing. Um, I love seeing how how there's a, a light sh- being shown on that. Um, and I love how a lot of people are representing how multicultural Israel as a country is. That's such an interesting point, because I think for the longest time we thought it was, you know, just something singular. And now, as with all um, cuisines that I've seen, you know, first you just see it's it's called Chinese food and then you get into the regional distinctions or it's you know Japanese food. And then the evolution of cuisine is always digging into the complexity and going deeper and understanding the nuance. And I think we are at such an interesting point with um, Israeli cuisine in, th- in that way. Well, I know that um, that ties into one of your great passions, which is travel. And I know that as you um, take a break, this well-deserved break, travel will be um, in your plans. So I, um, I look forward to hearing from you from the road and, you know, keeping track of you at, on your next adventures. I'm all for, you know, breaking with the past and launching into new adventures. So after you close this Saturday, I can't wait to see what it is that you do next. So thank you so much for coming on to Speaking Broadly. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks. My next guest is Natasha McIrvin. I'm excited to have her here because she creates some extraordinary experiences at some of the best known places, I would say, in New York, in the country, and now the world. And that is because she works with 11 Madison Park, Made Nice, and The Nomad. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you. Um, I am so excited to be on the show right now. So thank you so <laughs> much for great. having me. Um, you have a, a crazy title. Your title is Creative Project Director of Creative Projects. Yes. Um, I like the idea that you're a director at like, you know, twenty six plus three hundred and sixty eight days or whatever. Right. You're like nearly <laughs> twenty seven, but yes. um, because you're in charge of so many things that go into making those restaurants very special. Can you just describe what it is that um, you have created your work to be? Because I think, you know, it didn't exist before you. Right. Um, You know, I think there's kind of a story into how um, this title and this position came to be, and we can get to that. But I mean, currently, what I do, it's a whole slew of things. It's anything from um, helping to establish dining room floor plans for you know future restaurants or working for the design of a new credenza. Um, <laughs> that's, um, that's pretty disparate yes. between credenza design. Do you have any background in credenza design? Zero. Or zero, okay. I have none, yes. <laughs> um, I, and that's one thing about this job. It's very much kind of a... Um, if you don't know how to do it, it doesn't really matter. You throw yourself at it anyways, and you learn along the way. And luckily, as much as I'm a creative person and I love to learn those things along the way, there's a great support system at the restaurants and other people that I can learn from and ask questions. So it, you know, it, it evolves and I have made several mistakes along the way as well. Um, but okay. I mean, I always love mistakes. I wrote a whole book about mistakes. Like what is your most flaming, um, mistake that you learned from? Oh, gosh, I mean, right now as we're in the process of working on the renovation, there have been several times. So 11 yes. Madison Park, when does it close? So we close on June 9th to the public, um, and we will be closed until 
towards the end of September as we undergo a full renovation. It's been um, kind of a long time coming. But, uh, and you've been intimately involved in working on the renovation. Very much so. Oh, I want to hear all about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. I mean, that room has very much become my home. I started working there at the end of 2010. So for me, there's something okay, about... 20 years old. Were you? Did you skip college? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I did go straight from culinary school, oh. from high school, culinary school, straight to EMP. Um, I celebrated my uh, 21st birthday, actually, by going to a beer happy hour at... 11 Madison. Oh my gosh. Uh, and then continuing and coming here to Roberta's afterwards for dinner. Roberta's so, so often plays a role in people's lives. It it's, a, it's amazing. It's a very special place. Okay, so the, the renovation, what's going to happen? And what did you get to do to help make that happen? So um, when I first came back to the company, so while I started in 2010, I actually left for a year, which we'll get to, and came back um, in 2014. And my first, my role when I started was project manager. So this was kind of the first project down the pipeline that I started working on. So it was very much, I was involved from the early phases to now where we have, you know, fully, you know, 100% design schematics and whatnot. Um, Okay, so can you, maybe you can't tell me, maybe it's too top secret, but um, are the colors going to change? You can have different types of chairs. Like what's the aesthetic of the new um, EMP? I mean, the colors are definitely going to change. Um, There are going to be new chairs. Our current chairs and banquettes are a little bit worn um, after, you know, the years that we've had them. But um, one thing that's very special about that place is it's so unique. To me, that space is so New York. It has the soaring ceilings. It has those Art Deco elements that are so iconic. And um, we're lucky enough to be working with an architect, uh, Brad Clopeville from Portland, who also has offices out here. And he was a longtime regular at the bar. So he loves the space as much as we do. And so he doesn't want to change it too much, which was very important to everyone like who, like myself, have made that their home. So some of those Art Deco elements are still going to be there, I think, for the long-standing regulars at 11 Madison. They're going to be happy to see those um, in the new version. But absolutely, I mean, we need new tables, new chairs. So <laughs> there's going to be an aesthetic change for sure. I think we talk about making it more modern and timeless. Um, we just signed another lease for 20 years. Wow. So we're very excited. Um, but the restaurant needs to last that long, and we're looking for um, a look that's going to um, carry us through those next 20 years. So I love one of the things that you've done to celebrate in that space, which is has now happened for the last time, is the Derby Party, yes. the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby Party, which is um, a sort of an entire afternoon party around a two-minute event. Exactly. <laughs> which is an extraordinary ratio of time yes. um, spent to time enjoyed. So what... Were your what was your role in creating those derby parties? I feel like horse topiaries played a role. Yes, very much so. Uh, that topiary is very dear to me. Um, no, actually, when I so when I first did start um, at the restaurant in 2010, I started as a kitchen server at the very bottom. Um, but one of the things that 11 Madison Park prides itself on is these programs of ownership. So we try and get um, employees involved in certain aspects of the guest experience from coffee to tea. That's so um, interesting. So like you could be one of many servers and you chose to be involved with the derby, but somebody else could be involved in like the beer program. The beer program. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Which is great. And I think it gives everyone like it did for myself, a sense of belonging and purpose. And f- you feel like you're contributing to the betterment of the restaurant, which I was very excited about. So it was actually something when I started the 
um, the gentleman who was in charge of the derby before me was leaving. And so Will came up to me and asked if I so would Will be interested. So Will Gadara, who is one of the two co-owners yes. of Love and Madison Park. My boss. <laughs> Her boss. Hi, boss. Hi, boss. Um, um, it came up to you? Yes, and asked if I'd be interested in working on this project. Now, I had always been a creative person growing up, so I kind of threw myself at it. And I really, with these kinds of things, I really dig deep into Google. And I started researching what the Derby was about because I had never been to Kentucky to see, I hadn't seen a horse race at all. I certainly hadn't been to see the Derby. Um, so I wanted to find out about the traditions, food traditions, beverage traditions, um, aesthetically, what was the look we were going for. Um, and so I had this idea where we were going to have grass all over the restaurant and I wanted a giant horse topiary in the window. <laughs> and I pitched that idea and they said, okay, if you can make it happen, then great, this will be your project. And so it was. So I like to think that you know, my job now, what I have, it's all thanks to that horse topiary. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You've ridden that horse into, um, I guess not the sunset exactly, but you also are involved with another uh, party project there, which is the Masquerade Ball. Correct. So one thing that fascinates me is that uh, Nomad and EMP, they're very controlled environments and Everyone pays such attention to detail, so you have the perfect experience. But parties are much more wild and loose. And so you've been involved both in the sort of the, I don't want to call it uptight, but let's call it the uptight side <laughs> and the wild side. Yes. So talk about the masquerade party and how do you balance, you know, this precision with sort of... This loose, alive loose, yes. kind of feeling. Yeah. I mean, that definitely that puts very nice language to the difference between 11 Madison Park and the Nomad. Um, And certainly with the Masquerade Ball, there are so many moving parts. We take over the whole first floor of the hotel rooms and transform each room. So with that party, we have so many different people involved. And so it's kind of like that ownership thing that I was talking about where you just have this idea and you give it to someone and let them run with it. And as a group, we're constantly convening and making sure we're going over all those details and nitpicking everything because that's what we do. So, well, <laughs> but That's a strategy, nitpicks. Yes. Um, and so what were some of the things that you were excited about um, for the Nomad Masquerade Ball, which happens on New Year's Eve? Uh, it's on I mean, Halloween. Sorry. Yes. Halloween. No. <laughs> sorry. Uh, we do have a New Year's Eve party that as was, well. Yeah, another dress-up occasion. <laughs> yes. Um, I one of my very favorite um, experience was was last year. Um, the theme was kind of Paris turn of the century, um, and having lived there, um, I kind of really, you know, put my all into this. And with all of the rooms upstairs, uh, we wanted to have some kind of connective tissue between them all and that was the hallway that you walk through as you're going to these different rooms and so the idea was thrown out there that what if the hallway could look like a Parisian street wow um, which is tricky in a hotel room <laughs> seems hard. but I had so much fun with it and we put up window shutters over all of the artwork and changed the lights so that they look like uh, street lamps um, had some sound effects and vines kind of crawling all over so for me it was one of those things that really had I don't know, an effect on the party. And I don't know that people could quite put their finger on it when they were walking through those halls. But for me, it was something that was such a transformative element of that. And that's what I love about the masquerade more than anything is those spaces are so they're truly transformed and you're taken somewhere else, which is so lovely. Now, is there a magician as part of that night? 
There has been in the past. Um, Dan White, who is our resident um, magician at the Nomad, who has his weekly performances, usually gets involved. Him, um, his company Theory 11, will usually have their magicians, whether it's a whole room dedicated to that magician or whether it's a roving magician. We always try and find ways to incorporate that. How did a magician become part of the lore of this restaurant group? You know... Um, especially with the nomad being more of that kind of loose and alive spirit, we're looking for ways to, and it also has so many different spaces. You have the main restaurant and you have the library and you have the bar. And then moving upstairs, we have different rooms that are usually for conference rooms. Um, but those can be kind of taken over and we wanted to find ways to maximize those. So at first it was actually a room on the first floor that was a jazz, um, a jazz night of sorts. And so um, it would be a once a week or, you know, twice a week kind of event where you'd buy tickets and come in and see these jazz singers. Um, And then as soon as that kind of faded out, we were looking for the next thing. And um, we had been in touch with Dan White and his, um, and Theory 11 from his, uh, experience working with us on the magic course at 11 Madison Park. Uh, which, well, yes, exactly. Yes. Because that's why I want to know, because you turned into a magician as a server. That's true. How hard is it to do card tricks as a server? Oh my gosh, it's so hard. That was, <laughs> for me, that was one thing that I will say in all of my experience certainly took me outside of my box yes. um, in many ways. Just for me, as a, I'm a very, I like to be very calculated. I like to be very organized and have my systems. And so for me, magic has never been something that's been alluring. I'm always, I kind of write it off. Uh-huh. And so when we were told we're going to be working on this magic course based on the tradition of three card Monty in New York City, which is a big part of kind of New York street um, performances, if you could call it that. Um, I was a bit taken aback. I was like, well, magic, really? Like, oh, I don't know. It just feels like so, it felt so corny to me. But working with Dan and his crew, they are so talented. And um, it was, they trained us so well. And it was this whole course where you'd have a dessert in front of you and someone would come over and, you know, do this trick with cards. Um, And then, you know, you would have your your next course revealed by the card that you selected. So it was a pretty exciting experience. And for me, one of the things that was um, really rewarding about it was when we finally felt confident enough to do it and we yes. were doing it for guests yeah. and just watching their reactions, the pure joy on people's faces and excitement when they saw that reveal and they were, um, fooled, I guess I can't find a better word. Um, <laughs> they, it was just so exciting for me to see that. And at that point, then you like, you couldn't help but fall in love with it and really right. kind of get into the, into I mean, the in some, in some way, it's really the essence of the experience at all of the brands, right. Within the, um, make it nice because you want to su- surprise and delight people and a magic trick it goes to the heart of it. And you have a server bringing you that experience and you are in control of the surprise yes. of the guest. Yes. Just the way if you have wet feet, you know, and someone overhears you have wet feet, then we bring you, them slippers. You bring them slippers. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Um, so that type of surprise and delight is quite different from um, what you found when you went to Paris and you were working at, was it Frenchie? Frenchie. At Frenchie. Yes. So can you talk about, you know, your journey through EMP to Frenchie and back? Like, what did you learn by completely changing your environment? You know, when I so when I was first at EMP for the first three years, um, it's a very intense environment. Um, I love it. 
but it's very intense. It's you're constantly studying and being quizzed on wines and, you know, service and technique. And the mindset there, everyone is trying to advance to the next level, to the next level. Um, and so I did that and I, you know, I rose to the top, which was the captain level. And then I was even dabbling in some management as well. Um, and for me, I've, I've always been an adventurous um, person and always wanted to travel. And so as much as I was loving you know, the EMP experience, I was like, ah, I need to get out of here. I need to do something. I need to move somewhere else. Um, and for me, Paris was my first um, instinct just because I had spoken French in high school and was comfortable with the language. So um, I just decided to kind of pull the trigger and make it happen. Um, I'm so glad that I did, but I went over there without a job, without an apartment, without a bank account, any of these things, which I ended up... Okay, was that a little scary? Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) sounds terrifying. It was, but I mean, having worked at 11 Madison Park, um, and also, I think, just being raised the way I was, it was, you know, you will find something. It may not be what you had in mind um, going into it, but you will find something, and if you don't, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to come back having had a great trip to Paris. That's such a great attitude. Yeah. Um, but that's my attitude now. I'm sure there were moments where you could have <laughs> talked to me then. Um, and I wouldn't have been so optimistic. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was terrifying. I had some contacts and some interviews set up. Um, but I had to go through that whole process of getting the visa and, um, kind of finding my niche there. Um, and luckily I was, um, absorbed into the Frenchie world, which is a wonderful place. If you're ever in Paris, please I go. Love I love Frenchie, but yeah. it's really different. It is so different. It's, you go from 11 Madison park where everyone is at the top of the game, their game. Um, all of the sommeliers are studying for their advanced and masters and it's that constant push. And it's also a big restaurant. There's 29 tables to Frenchie which is the size of... It's smaller than our service station in the restaurant. (laughs) There are 12 tables. Um, There were two of us working on the floor as opposed to 30. And did you feel like, what a come down? I've been at the top of the world and now I'm sort of, you know, in a cafe? You know, yeah, it wasn't so much that. For me, I didn't really care if I was in a cafe or a fine dining restaurant as long as I was learning something and being challenged and kind of felt like I was shaping something. That was what was important to me. But I will say um, that was it was a big cultural change, not only culturally from U.S. culture to French culture, but also from a restaurant culture kind of standpoint, where, like I said, you have this, you know, intense experience at Ella Mattis Park to something that is a little bit more lax because that's just the French culture and that's the way that they approach their restaurant and their service as well. So the people that I was working with, I adored them, but it just wasn't the same kind of um, mentality. I mean, because there are only two of us in the dining room, you can't really advance that far. So there wasn't, <laughs> um, there wasn't that kind of chain, you know, or that those kinds of similar goals. Or you kind of have to recalibrate what ambition is. Exactly. Because ambition is going to be different if you don't have the steps laid out for right. you. And for me too, I think you know, just the French style of service is so different. I think people go into a French restaurant and have a different expectation of the meal. And what's that expectation? I thought they're very picky. I think it's what I found is that they weren't really looking for that kind of gracious, warm Hmm. service. I felt like 
French people almost wanted to be treated a bit roughly and be told what to do and told that they can't have this. And, you know, the answer was no. Whereas at 11 Madison Park, we were never allowed to say the word no. You always right. had to find the yes in everything. So on one hand, it was very liberating to say no. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I instinct, because of my roots with 11 Madison Park, I wanted to make it happen for them. I wanted to make things possible. But I felt like there was a lot of pushback um, with that, both from the guests and, you know, whatnot. But. I guess... Uh, it also shows you that there is more than one way, right? Because if you're completely indoctrinated in that EMP way, you're like, this is the only way. It's probably a great experience to say, it's not the only way. Absolutely. You know, and um, and just to open your mind and eyes to other things. It might not be who you are, right. but it's... It's definitely sort of another expression. So um, I'm wondering, you've worked for some incredible mentors, and is there a piece of writing that inspires you that you would like to read? Uh, I do have one with me. Now, this is not um, related to um, cooking exactly, um, but this is actually a new mentor. This is coming from a new mentor in my life. She's my friend, Ida. Um, She's 66 years old, and she lives on the Upper East Side. She's wonderful. Um, And I was with her on Sunday, and I noticed this hanging on her wall, and it was just one of those pieces that I, I don't know, I felt like it spoke to me. And Okay, how do you know Ida? She is um, my stepmom's best friend's mother. Okay, this is great. Uh, yes. Please go ahead. But she's wonderful, and um, this comes from her wall. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is all the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Now, this is by Rudyard Kipling. Oh. I like to change the ending where it says you'll be a daughter, (laughs) or you'll be a woman, my daughter, but um, to each his own. That's, and why does that mean so much to you? I think it's something that um, really kind of speaks to the idea of having this um, pursuit of perfection. I mean, I think a lot of this is unattainable in many ways, um, but it's that constant struggle for perfection and having that mindset of humili- humility along the way. It's something that's devoid of showiness and glamour, um, and it's those old-fashioned virtues of strength and fortitude and always, you know, trying to make something happen um, despite the reality of the situation. And I think that actually you just wrote out your your job description. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So you work for Will Gadara and Jan Lahum, these extraordinary partners who are perfectionists. Yes. And uh, you have your own world within their world. How is it to work with people who, or how do you have your voice heard when their voice must be so strong in your head? Yeah, it's it's a challenge, or it has been a challenge, learning how to kind of work around that and with that. Um, I think at first there was certainly a lot of pressure and fear. Um, I think that you think that you have this idea of who they are because of their names. And, you know, when I first started at the company, Will Gadara and, you know, Jan- Daniel Hume, it's, their names have such resonance. But the more that you get to spend time with them and speak to them, you feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, and so for me, it was something that, um, I don't know, I 
at first I would, you know, try and pitch an idea that they would like, knowing that they liked it, and kind of go along with that. I would, you know, start to learn the nuances of what they expected. Um, doing the first Kentucky Derby was very different from, you know, doing this past one, um, just because I, I kind of fully grasp, I think, what the expectation of that is. But the really beautiful thing about working with them is they're all about um, hiring people, not um, people for you know them. They don't want just employees. They don't want servers. Um, and so I think when they hire you, and that was something that I came to realize, is by becoming a part of their team, they wanted me for a reason. It was because I have a voice and an opinion. And so there have been times where I've sat down with Will and um, he's asked, he said, you know, no, but like, what do you really think? Like, tell me what your opinion is. Tell me like what you're, what you actually, um, not trying to, you know, guess about what my answer is going to be. I actually want to know what you think. Um, and so for me, that was very, um, exciting and honoring. And the more I kind of came to accept the fact that they actually wanted to hear my opinion, the more freely I gave it, um, and tried to give it. I think that it means that their hiring process might be, must be really excellent because you can't give that type of responsibility either to a server to, you know, take on something or to anyone else. If you don't really deeply understand what they're about and what their strengths are, are and right. what they could bring because otherwise you don't really want that you know you have to know you're going to want their opinion yes because <laughs> otherwise that would be kind of backfire on you exactly um and i would love to know because they're again so they're they're terrific to work for but they're guys is there are there is there a woman that you'd like to nominate for the um speaking broadly hall of dames um, I would like to go so far as to nominate two women. You go right ahead. Um, they are our dream weavers at 11 Madison Park. At the restaurant, we have this very unique um, position called dream weaver, and their job um, over the course of your meal is to make experiences happen for you that you would have never believed could happen. Um, for example, like you mentioned, um, if you come in and your shoes are wet from the rain outside, we bring you slippers. We've created experiences where you go into the elevator and it's transformed into a spaceship. Um, Just randomly? Well, it was. there was always context, whether okay, it was something good. that was mentioned or a joke that was said. Um, we always try and make it intentional. For example, I was recently in at the restaurant with my grandparents who are from Seattle and my family. And the next day it was forecasted to rain. So on our way out, they gave us these umbrellas that were all customized and drawn on with the leaves. And the, it was a really magical moment, but it was so subtle and so um, perfect. And so the dream weavers are the ones that make it happen. So we have two, uh, Emily Parkinson and Bridget Zhu. And both of them are an inspiration to me every single day. It is mind boggling the things that they come up with uh, that they're able to do, you know, the flip of a coin they're just so resourceful and truly artists and i'm inspired by them every day fantastic well thank you so so much for um joining me today we're going to take a short commercial break and when i come back i'm going to have the extraordinary Lindsay jang with me she is one of the co-founders of yardbird in hong kong a yakitori restaurant izakaya that is the talk of the city and the world. She came to New York City um, with her partner, Matt Abergal, and they did uh, a few nights of dinners here, all sold out instantly. And we're going to get to go behind the scenes with her just after this break. Be right back.
program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and welcome back to Speaking Broadly. I am very excited to have my next guest. She is the co-founder and co-owner of Yardbird Sunday Grocery and Ronin. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Ronin. Ronin. Yeah. In Hong Kong. Um, You created an instant hit with a restaurant in Hong Kong, which alone I think seems like it's an extraordinary feat. But the fact that um, you and Matt are both from Canada, the fact that you were in Hong Kong but doing Japanese food, um, and the fact that you didn't choose the space because like it was the most trafficked area in the city all make it even more extraordinary that you were such a huge success overnight. So I'd love to just I'd love to talk to you about this success story. How did you get that first burst of energy and just got everybody coming to this restaurant and talking about it? Um, I think, to be honest with you, having grown up in the hospitality industry and worked in it and Matt also working in the industry for so long and coming from New York prior to moving to Hong Kong, we knew everything that we wanted to do and what we didn't want to do. So having always worked for someone else, yep. you're, you know, it t- I wrote the business plan for two years while Matt was like the reason we went to Hong Kong while well, he was fulfilling that contract. And so by the time we opened, we knew exactly okay, so what did you want to do and what did you want to avoid? We wanted to do no reservations and we wanted to start Are you like the first no reservations in Hong Kong? <laughs> and like did people hate you for it or I mean, probably the first westernized restaurant, no reservations. Oh, right. Good like, point. you know, there's the Dai Pai Dongs where you they probably don't even have a phone number to reserve. <laughs> um, we also, there's no tipping culture. So coming from New York and knowing the hustle and the incentive that your floor staff need to provide good service, that's what we wanted to bring. So usually in Hong Kong, there's a 10% auto gratuity and that 10% goes to the owner or whoever they want, however they want to use it. Totally legal. In the U.S., you'd be class actioned immediately. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we wanted to do no reservations, and we wanted to train the staff to have personal who had personality uh-huh. to engage with our customer instead of just being a robot order taker. And we wanted to train the local not train that sounds patronizing. But we wanted to educate the local diner that 
you know, you can tip for service received and you can treat a server with respect because Hong Kong is still a two class system. And, you know, there's still the upper and lower class and people still have maids. So it's service industry is still considered submissive. And so we wanted to bring, like if you, uh, this is a great example. I was at Nobu, Matt was at Masa, Natasha with EMP. Like that's a glory job. If you're in New York in the service industry, like you are proud of where you work. And we wanted to change that in Hong Kong. And the only way to do that was to hire people who had no experience. I'm talking like zero, never worked in a restaurant before. Wow. They maybe never even like went to college. These were like young kids, 18, 19 years old, who had no idea what they were doing. So we just trained them. Like we trained them from ground zero. And everyone, wow. like you said, Natasha, started, you started the bottom. Like when I started at Nobu, I was a busser. And then a runner, and then you get tested and tested and tested till you're a floor captain. And then what do you do after that? And you just, you know, you have ambition or you're comfortable because you're making a good amount of money. And that's basically what we were trying to achieve in Hong Kong. And let's talk about the food because there's great food, uh, but in a really casual setting. And was that groundbreaking for Hong Kong as well? I think so. One thing I, uh, you know, Nobu is still like my hero, and he actually came to Yardbird, which like I was almost oh, so in tears like the entire time he was there. Um, he he was like fine dining with no white tablecloth. That was sort of one of the things, the core values at Nobu, and we were like fine dining service, no tablecloth. House party. <laughs> you totally added house party right? in there, like, right? That's kind of who we are. Um, and so I can't remember what your question was. The food. <laughs> well, oh, it, go ahead. Remind me. So I was. I'm. I'm excited to talk about um, the food and the casual vibe yes. and the energy of that place. Okay. So basically. We came both from very fine dining establishments. And on Sunday, which was our only day off, which is why we have a Sunday's brand, um, we would always eat yakitori. Like yakitori tato on 55th between 8th and 9th was like our staple. We loved that that you couldn't make a reservation. After a while, we went so often that like we could call them and they would at least hold us the parts of the chicken that we wanted. <laughs> but we great. were always willing to wait, you know, wait with a with like a, a cocktail and an ice cold beer. And that was what we liked. And so really, it was a no brainer. We were like, we want to eat yakitori every day. We want to drink with our food. And we want to give the best service that I learned from Nobu. And Matt's going to apply the skill set that he took from Masa. And that's literally what we've done. Now, you found a community really quickly, and that's because you activated on social so fast. What did you do? Like, how did you make that happen? I, you know, it's funny. Social media, I don't know. I mean, don't quote me on this, but I feel like it, like, really <laughs> it's blew going up. Out. It's going out in the airwaves. <laughs> I don't have to quote you to be no, heard. Right. Okay. So my, I'll, take the, I'll take the hit. I feel like um, it first started just with press. And then, and then people just found us. And to be very honest and not arrogant, but in 2011 in Hong Kong, there weren't that many restaurants like us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were setting the tone and we were sort of pioneering this 
casual environment with high quality food and fun in like you could eat and drink and just have a good time and it wasn't so transactional um and then I get a lot I go off on these tangents and I'm completely lost now that's so I guess I have a follow-up question because you you um have this sort of skateboard yes okay culture yes the um and the the vibe, which translated to social, right? Which helped Correct. broaden your audience. So people found you and you were able to create a, a community. And I feel like the community is the foundation of all of your projects now, yeah. right? You stand for something very specific. So yes. I almost feel like your restaurant, um, and the, the three of them, uh, are in a way like a, a media brand, and now you've created a media brand. What do you think the relationship is between creating a restaurant and then creating a digital brand? Because you're yeah, Miss Miss Bish, Miss Bish. Yes. Um, okay, so now I understand. Now I remember the question. Um, so Matt and I met when we were seventeen, working in a skate shop. So our entire idea of marketing was stickers and T-shirts. That's, like, still how skate, surf, snow culture markets, right? Um, so that's what we did. We made stickers and we made T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and we had, like, our favorite... It was just so serendipitous in so many ways. Like, our favorite skateboard brand, the guy who did their logo, was a friend of a friend. So he did our logo for us, which was, like... It was like me sitting here with you, you know, when you put your dreams into the universe and then they come back to you, it's absolutely surreal. And so then having worked in the skate and snow industry in Canada, all of those people, you know, they moved to Vancouver and they started their own brands and then they had to do production. So they ended up in China and then Hong Kong is like the savior after being in the factories in China for like a week. So we became this cafeteria for like all the designers and product developers and like the pretty high up there people making decision on product for like Vans, Herschel Supply, like the guys, the guys from Herschel, he was my boss at the skate shop. No way. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That's totally so, amazing. Like our network of friends were now entrepreneurs. We're doing business in China and then we got to feed them. You know, and that's how Vans, that's how we have this relationship with Vans, who gives us shoes and did a collaboration with us. And we're going into L.A. next year. And That's that, really big news. That's really big news. And what what's the concept that you'll do in L.A.? It's going to be, well, I'm not going to say this on the air because somebody might get mad at me, but we're calling it Bird Yard. Okay. So you can assume that the concept would be... Similar, <laughs> similar, yes. To what we do, <laughs> yes. right? The actually, right? It's sort of upside down. It's flipping US, Hong it. Kong, flipping it's, the bird. It's Ooh. flipping the bird a little bit. <laughs> that's that's good. Yeah. Um, and so, is your goal to grow more brands? And what about Ms. Bish? Um, so, Ms. Bish is a digital platform that focuses on strong female-driven content, and that is completely separate from the restaurants. But through my relationships um, that I've made through Yardbird is how I met my co-founders for Miss Bish, how I met my current boyfriend. 
you know, it's it's been literally a it's a magical place. Like really it has been. And so that's how Sundaysgrocery.com, the editorial side came to life because I was simultaneously learning all of this digital content creation. And so then I was growing my communications team internally with the restaurants. And every time I learn something from each, I apply it to everything. Um, that seems like, talk about serendipity, that seems like such a productive, um, you know, two businesses to have simultaneously. One that's essentially a digital brand building itself and a, a restaurant group that needs promotion well, because of the way that they could feed each other literally. And it's funny because now as we're sitting here doing a podcast, you know, content is king. So we now organically have an agency within my restaurant communications team where we do content creation, social media management for other people, all friends and family, because at the end of the day, we want to make sure the brand DNA aligns and we're not promoting something that we ourselves wouldn't get behind but it's been so positive for my team because I get to keep giving them new things and they get to keep getting like they keep learning and that's for me like the ultimate being able to be a a founder or an owner or a leader the more I can step away and the more I can delegate and the more I don't have to make the decisions for things that I've previously made decisions on that is success to me so i'm curious about your success with finding the boyfriend while your <laughs> uh, while your partners your ex well your baby, baby daddy. daddy baby daddy um so you have what i would say is one of the most complex and right now peaceful um collaborations between uh my life. Interested parties. So <laughs> can you tell me, like, was it a struggle to start a business with Matt, who was your, you know, longtime partner, and t- you have two beautiful children with him, and then to break up that partnership, um, fall in love, you have an amazing boyfriend who also is part of the business. How hard was that? It's so weird. You know, you know how, well, as you get older... I cry because I'm older. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, you just you realize how, unless you take a leap, and you know it's going to hurt and it's not going to be easy, would you rather be scared for a minute or be miserable forever? And Matt and I were best friends at 17 until we were like 23, and then we fell in love. Actually, because we started working in a restaurant together, and then you know, you have two kids and things change and hormones are crazy. And we were building a restaurant and we were in a new city. And then six months after we opened in July and we separated in December. And I got to say, like, for sure, the words, just saying the words, you know, you know, you think them as women, we probably rehearse them in our minds for so long before they can actually be like falling out of our mouth. Um, what so were the words? Just like, I, I don't think this is working. Like, we are not happy. And I think a lot of times, you know, and Matt will say, you know, you think you just, it's going to get better. And I did too. But I was the one, like, I, I just had to make the call because we were destroying ourselves because we were both unhappy and it wasn't good. 
so we had this business that was just growing like crazy. We had two young children. And I think at the core, like, it was hard, you know, there was resentment, there was anger, there were moments where it was like, I did more than you and blah, 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 right? And then we finally, it took a long time. Um, I would say in the last year and a half, it's been great. You know, he actually likes Alex, my new boyfriend, more (laughs) than me most of the time. Um... At the core, we're best friends, you know, like at the end of the day, you know, we still say, I love you. We co-parent, you know, we hang out, we all hang out. Um, I still talk to his parents, you know, like there's very much, we're a modern family, period. What do you think the key to that is? Uh, You know, people literally ask me, they're like, I don't understand. Like, I hate my ex and da 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 And I think that we have true love for each other and true respect and it's taken a long time to realize that we need each other to be successful especially in the restaurant space and we've given each other freedom to do other things like he's not mad at me doing Miss Bish and I'm not mad at him you know what projects he's doing and I don't feel like I own him And we actually, we get such joy, like, when we get to do these pop-ups and we see that what we've built can translate to other places, there's nothing like that feeling of, like, being like, this is what we've done together. That's so great. I wonder... um in stalking you on social, (laughs) I've seen your extraordinary um, yoginess. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I... I've done yoga for also half, more than half my life now. Do you think that your yoga practice in any way has informed or influenced your ability to um, flow in the way that you have or make the hard decisions you have? Like one infinity percent, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is something my six-year-old would say. Um, For sure. Like I was lucky enough you know you practice yoga but really you got to find a teacher you have to find a mentor um and I found one in Hong Kong ironically who was the most generous soul I've ever met who didn't keep any secrets who wasn't competitive who wanted you to be better than him and I learned all I learned from practice and practice and physical practice and not from like bs spiritual talk was that if you can live without ego and be humble truly then like you're at peace you know like I'm not I feel like I if I can just be happy for everybody else and be a nice person and you know Matt's mom who's really like a mom to me too she told me once because she is also a very selfless person And I'm not going to claim to be non-selfish because obviously there's selfish parts of me. She said to me once, you know, the best thing her father ever said to her was, if you can do something for someone else, anything, small, big, pick up that water, go pick up groceries for me, do it. If you have the time, do it. Like there's no, just be generous with your time and your energy. And that's what I remind myself every single day to do. Okay. That is the most beautiful expression <laughs> I've got. <laughs> like, you're so here. Um, and with that thought, that wraps up uh, 
today's Speaking Broadly. Thank you, listeners, so much for um, being with us today. Thank you to my awesome, incredible engineer, David Tattashore. And come back and listen again next week. This is Dana Cowan for Speaking Broadly. Actually, I want the two of you to share your Instagram handles and where we can find you. So I'll start. I'm Dana Cowan. You can find me at FW Scout and also at Speaking Broadly. And Natasha? So I just have one Instagram. It's at Natasha underscore McIrvin, uh, M-C-I-R-V-I-N. I'm at Lindsay Jang, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-J-A-N-G. And then instead of wasting your time, if you go to that, you'll see all (laughs) of my other things that are going on on my profile. Right. So you can um, learn about what's going on at the restaurants. And Lindsay's own Instagram is really personal and beautiful, but the, and has a very different point of view from the restaurants, which you can link to from there. So that's it. Have a great week. See you next time. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.